Hey, good evening, everyone. Good evening, welcome back. I sincerely apologize for the long hiatus uh, that was... What? The snowstorm was, was my fault as well, yeah. Um, yeah, if I had that much of a direct line to make things happen... Yeah, no. Um, yeah, so sorry about that. Hopefully, we're not going to run into any more problems like that, especially because of snow. If it keeps snowing, I'm just going to keep sinking into a blacker and blacker depression. I'm ready. It's, it's baseball season. It's not supposed to be snowing. Um, so, like I said in, uh, in my email, which, by the way, if some of you didn't get my emails telling you about the schedule change, please email me so that I can put you on the email list. So I, I'm going to say this again because I need you all to hear me when I say this. If you're not receiving any emails from me about the class, if you've not received any of them at all, you have no idea what I'm talking about, email me. Don't come and talk to me and tell me because then I'm not going to remember. Email me so I have your email address and I'll put you on the list. Deal? All right, so hopefully... Uh, after tonight, we're not going to have to reschedule anything else. After tonight, we're going to pick up just like the syllabus says. We're going to meet again next week. Uh, we were going to do two back-to-back anyway, so I'm not throwing anything onto you that you weren't already going to have. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll go uh, as planned. I'll fill you in because if we continue to go as planned, we'll only have 11 sessions instead of 12. I'll fill you in in the coming weeks about what that will look like. We'll either fold the last one and combine it so that we do two at once, or we'll add something else in. We'll see. I haven't decided yet. Uh, So, anyway, let's pray, and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for the time that we can spend together tonight. Thank you for all those who are able to make it tonight, and uh, we pray as we get back into studying your word and studying how to study your word, uh, that you would help us. We know that that the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of those who love Jesus to understand the things written in the scriptures, even as we learned about this this weekend, that, that Jesus with the disciples, after his resurrection, opened their minds to understand what the scriptures said about Christ. So open our minds that we might see more of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, when you came in, there were three different sheets of paper for you to pick up on the table back there. So I'm gonna gonna briefly tell you what they are and then we'll we'll address them as, as we go through the class. I see lots of you were very observant when you came in. No. So there are, what? Why did I screw up? Oh, sorry, I didn't separate them properly. I'm sorry. So there are two, okay. Here's what you should have. 
You should have one that's just the slides. These are the slides for tonight. You should have one that says, that's, uh, says never read a Bible verse. It's a little booklet uh, that I made copies of. And then you should have one that is at the top that says, what is the fruit of righteousness? Okay? So those are the three that you should have. If we run out of any in a little bit, I can go down and make some more uh, printouts for you. So the slides for tonight, I don't need to explain that. Those are just the slides for tonight. Uh, Never read a Bible verse is a little booklet that I'm going to, I'm giving to you uh, that addresses the issue of context and reading the Bible in context. Uh, And we're going to talk about that later tonight. Um, And uh, this other thing, what is the fruit of righteousness, is something that I wrote up for you guys that kind of takes you through Uh, asking interpretive questions and looking at context in one particular case. Uh, It was something that I was going to put into the lesson tonight, but then I realized that every week I put too much into the lesson and we are rushed. So I said, I'm just going to take that out and I'm going to give it to you so you guys can read that on your own time. It's just an example of how you will ask interpretive questions and use context to answer those questions uh, as you move from observation to interpretation uh, in our, our scheme of understanding the Bible. So, uh, way back when, the last time that we were together, we talked about phrasing. You guys remember that? We started moving the text all over the place. So, hopefully in the time that we have had now between uh, the last time we were together and tonight, you've had time to work with that a little bit. I want to remind you, if you haven't gone there, go to our website, uh, to the page that has the audio from the last time. If you go to uh, our website and go to sermons, you can find that. And uh, there's a bunch of resources on there, PDFs, links to videos to help you with that uh, skill of phrasing. Uh, So, you know, I'm talking to people who haven't been able to make it and, and they come to me, they're like, this doesn't make any sense. I said, well, did you listen to the audio? No. I said, well, listen to the audio. Uh, and, then, and then go look at these resources. I give them uh, to you to, to help you, not to create extra work. But now you've had three weeks in between um, uh, then and now. So hopefully you've made use of that. If not, they're staying there. So you can, you can go access them later. Uh, so, but what I want to do to start with tonight is for you guys at your tables to talk about the work that you did for lesson three, which really was just all about, um, well, we talked about phrasing, we talked about what it looked like to make good observations of the text. Now, we have to start by asking, what does the text say, right? Who remembers the four, the four kind of stages of interpretation that we've been talking about? First is, all right, all together now, observation, and then I, interpretation, and then C, correlation, and then A, application. Observation, interpretation, correlation, application. Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? That is, what does it mean in the author's mind, not what does it mean to you? What does it mean to the original audience? Correlation, how does it fit with the rest of the Bible? 
Uh, how does it fit with the, the rest of, of Christian theology and application? Why does it matter for me? Why should this text change my life? All right, so tonight we're going to start moving from observation to interpretation. Uh, so taking our observations and saying, uh, what does this mean? Uh, but the first thing I want you to do is at your tables to talk about uh, the work you did from the last time, talk about observations you made uh, about the text. I'm trying to remember, uh, I think it was the first 11 verses of Philippians. Just talk about observations that you made. If you tried to do the, the phrasing, you can talk about that. Um, Tom Faskorski and I worked through that earlier, what was it last week, Tom, or two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. Um, and, uh, and it was fun because even doing it with Tom sitting in my office, I was able to see things that I was like, oh, I didn't see that when I was doing it by myself. So Tom was correcting me. So it's possible for me to be wrong. It doesn't happen often, but it's possible. Um, so, but to, just to remind you, there's no right answer when it comes to, to phrasing. It was, it's just a tool to help you uh, understand the text better. So in the next, say, 20 minutes or so, why don't you guys uh, go ahead and talk at your tables about uh, your observations and, and phrasing, and then we'll come back together. We're going to talk a little bit about phrasing Philippians 1, 9 to 11, just to kind of re- recap that, and then we're going to move into tonight's lesson. Good? Okay, let's, um, let's come back together and do some talking. I lied to you. I told you I was going to give you 20 minutes. I actually gave you 15. Please forgive me. Um, but I do want to make sure we have time to, to talk as a group and then move on to some other stuff uh, tonight because I don't want to be rushed with five minutes trying to do stuff for uh, at the very end. So uh, I'm, I'm hereby nominating Tom Paskorski to run the microphone around even though he's not making eye contact with me, which is a smart move. <laughs> you thought I was joking. No. Um, so, first, just general, uh, what kind of things did you observe in the text as a part of your work? What kind of things did you notice that stood out to you that, that might be worthy of thinking about more? It's going to be short. Maybe I could have given you 20 minutes. Yeah. From the beginning, Paul calls Timothy and himself servants of Christ yeah. and the Philippians saints. Mm. Okay, Paul calls he, uh, himself and Timothy servants. He calls the, the Philippian saints. That's a good observation. So then the, the question that we'd have to ask, that we're, which you didn't have to ask questions yet, so you're, you're not doing it wrong if you didn't, but the question that would maybe come out of that is, why does Paul call himself and Timothy servants? Why does he call the Philippian saints? What does that mean? Um, what does saints mean? That's depending on the tradition that maybe you come from. That could have a different 
meaning in your mind. And so what, is, what does Paul mean when he uses the word saints, things like that? So those are some of the things we'll start talking about as we go tonight, the asking interpretive questions. Um, Paul expresses his love for the Philippians, and then he prays many prayers for them mm-hmm. to also have the same love through Jesus. Mm. Yeah, good. Paul expresses his affection for the Philippians and then prays for them that, that their love would abound as well. Grace and peace come from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Paul here, like in so many of his letters, or really all of his letters, begins with this, this greeting, grace and peace to you. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, a fun fact. Um, when, when Paul uh, writes his letters, he's writing his letters very much like anybody would write a letter in the ancient world. This is just how they, they wrote it. You would start with who was sending it, and then who was receiving it, and then there would be a a greeting. Um, And the greeting, most often uh, in the ancient world that they would would put in their letters is the Greek word karain, which just just means greetings. Paul uses the Greek word charis, grace. So they sound very similar, but Paul changes it to to reflect his, his particular conviction about all of life being full of God's grace. So, now there's no way that you would have been able to tell that from just reading reading this. That was that was uh, that was my free commentary on it. So, but that's cool. But it's a but it's a good observation. Why why grace and peace? Why not mercy? Why not justice? Why not love? Why, I mean, why why those things? Why those things in all of Paul's letters? Um, twice that Paul mentions in the end of verse 6 and the end of verse 10 that the day of Christ is coming. Mm -hmm. I think that's just talking about being the preparation before that. Mm -hmm. I I think they're pretty significant focal points in there. Yeah. So good observation, uh, both in that uh, he mentions that, and so we have a question right there, well, what's the day of Christ? But also that he mentions it twice. And so one of the things we're doing as we're making observations is we're looking for things that are repeated. If they're repeated, they may be more significant. And so twice he mentions the day of Christ. Why, why does he mention it twice there? What, what's the, is there any significance to that? Yeah. Yeah. Come. Okay. Well, I noticed that um, Paul didn't always say Jesus. He'd say Christ Jesus, mm-hmm. Lord Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. Christ, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. Christ. <laughs> so I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, he changes up the way that he refers to the Lord. Um, a lot of different ways. Uh, is there any significance to that? Something that we could ask? Yeah. So, d- yeah, Sherry. Hmm? I'm sorry, I can't hear Did you. Did I interrupt you with Jesus? No, oh, okay. you're good. So in verse 11, yeah. he, Paul credited Jesus Christ as the one from whom righteousness comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and this is, 
particularly verses 9 to 11, and we're going to talk about that in just a couple seconds, is uh, that's one of the complex statements. I mean, we've, we've talked about this before. Paul tends to write in really long sentences that aren't good English, but they're really good Greek. Um, but that doesn't help us. Uh, so, and that, what Sherry's pointing out at the end of verse 11, um, that it says that the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, um, that's kind of a difficult phrase. You know, we, we read it and we might skip over it. And we're like, yeah, fruit of righteousness, that sounds good. Okay, what does that mean? And it doesn't just mean whatever you want it to mean. Paul meant something by it. So, now, I'm not going to give you the answer tonight. I gave you a packet that tells you what I think it is. So you can read that. Um, so, but you'll see as you, as you work through that, and I hope you do, that it's, it takes more work and more thinking than just assuming you know what it means. You have to think about what did, what did Paul use these words for other places? What, did, what are the possible meanings of these words? What does Paul mean by it right here? Yeah, Sherry. Quality question. Yeah. Don't want lightning to strike me down here or anything. No, but don't. Yet some people write and they just kind of sling it out there and don't yeah. put a lot of deep thought as mm-hmm. to phraseology and all that we're talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Is that even remotely possible? You're going to say, no, it's divinely inspired probably, but I just thought I'd ask. Because yeah. seriously, some people yeah. really don't go deep and theological mm-hmm. with what they're doing. So. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, uh, is it possible that um, this, that Paul didn't put as much thought into it as we're giving it credit for? A couple, a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked in class, like, well, did it take Paul, like, three years to write this letter? I mean, because we're, we're breaking it down. And, uh, and, of course, the answer is no. I don't think it took Paul three years to write it, though, um, by the time Paul's writing this, he has 30 years or, or whatever of, of uh, ministry experience under his belt and theological teaching and things like that. So it's the same thing I would ask Tom when he talks about how long does it take him to prepare a sermon. He says, well, it, you know, it takes me two hours and 25 years. <laughs> right? I mean, so he, he has 25 years worth of experience teaching theology and preaching to draw on every time he preaches a sermon. Now, when you ask how long it takes me, it takes me 20 hours or more, right? So um, that, some of that comes with experience. With Paul, uh, this is, and I, and I think you're, you're on the right track, um, when, when, Sherry, when you say, of course, we know it's divinely inspired. And that's the thing I think we have to remember is even if it was something that Paul just wrote, and I, and I don't necessarily want to concede that that's the case, if we believe that the Holy Spirit was working in such a way that Paul wrote exactly what he wanted him to write, then I think we have to assume that every word and the way that the words are put together is significant. So the, the type of significance might be different, um, but uh, I, I, think, I don't think anything's there just at, at random. That makes sense. Yeah, Mike. Uh, here, wait. Here. Yeah, but Paul, as a human, I mean, I'm sure in all the books and all the writings, mm-hmm. their humanity sure. had to come out yeah. during their writing. Yeah, so 
I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you guys a big word and then I'm going to explain it so nobody freak out. Okay? When we talk about the way that the Bible is written, theologians say the Bible was written with concursive operation. Okay? Don't freak out. Basically, concursive operation means that Paul was writing or the author of Scripture was writing, the human author of Scripture was writing. They knew what they were writing. They weren't, they weren't robots just taking dictation or in a trans and just writing whatever they wanted. They were really writing and really intending to write what they wrote. But the Holy Spirit was working in such a way that without violating uh, the person's personality and their choices that they wrote exactly what he wanted them to write. So concursive means both working together. So concursive operation, both the human and the Holy Spirit working together in complete sync, though the human may not necessarily have known that they were writing what was eventually going to be uh, inspired scripture, right? So, um, yeah. So, you don't need to remember that word, but that's, I'm just giving you the technical theological term so you think I'm smart. Uh, okay. Paul has confidence in the Lord, okay. which is a different way of taking how the scripture is written, but he is confident that he who began a good work will perfect it. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's okay to say he's got great confidence in the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and uh, interesting, he's talking about there that um, uh, he's, he's thankful for the participation of, uh, in the gospel. The Philippians have been participants in the gospel with him. That's a, another question we can make. What does it mean to be participants in the gospel from the first day until now? And then it says, and he's confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. It's, his confidence in, is in what God is going to do in the Philippians, not what the Philippians are going to do for God might be theologically significant for the way that we understand the Christian life. Uh, What I want to do now is I want to move to talk a little bit about phrasing Philippians 1, 9 to 11, um, just to show you what I did. And like I said, Tom uh, rebuked me and corrected me on uh, what, what some of the stuff was. So this, this reflects my old uh, error some ways. Um, but I think you'll see that as, uh, as we go, that there are things that, that could be different. There are things that you might have differently. There are things that, uh, that it could be one or the other, and you have to start asking questions about why does this go with this and so forth. So it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and, be, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Um, for, the, for the sake of time, I'm not going to uh, break it down and ask you all to tell me exactly what, what you think it should be. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna show you. And you've got it all on your on your notes here to see kind of how I, I did it one by one. So, oh, that was backwards. Okay. So, see, on, on the, if you're looking at your notes, 
the bottom of page one shows you how I divided it and into page two. So I put them all, remember we, step one was you divide the, the, the text into phrases, little chunks where you can start asking how does this chunk fit with this chunk? And you list them down the side. And then you identify the main phrase. So what's the thing that could, uh, that could stand on its own without, uh, without anything else? Um, so this one's a little different because uh, I think normally we might break the beginning of verse 9 up at, after prayer. And it is my prayer because the, then there's the word that. The word that is what kind of one of those words that you look for. Say so that's probably where there's a phrase break. But here, uh, and it is my prayer, is really not a complete sentence, right? So the, to me, the main phrase is, and it's my prayer that your love may abound. And then you can put a period. It's my prayer that your love may abound. So, and then he adds in some other things. Now, you, you could have said that more and more fits with your, I pray that your love may abound more and more. That's a complete thought too. That's fine. I don't think you're missing anything if you, if you don't have it down there. So more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I have those under the idea of your love abounding. So they're describing things about the way that Paul wants the love to abound. I want your love to abound. How? Well, more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And then we have a so that. So this is describing purpose. We're going we're gonna to talk about some of these linking words and, and how they're important, especially in Paul's letters uh, in a couple weeks. And so that is saying, all right, everything that's come now in verse 9 has the purpose of this. So that you may approve what is excellent. So the, those first three lines were, how do I want your love to abound? This line at the beginning of verse 10 is why I want your love to abound. Or for what purpose I want your love to abound. And, then, and so be pure. So I want you to approve what is excellent. Why? So that you, uh, and so be pure, so that you will be pure and blameless. For the day of Christ, which I said is he wants them to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. If I had moved it back over so that it was parallel with everything, I'd be saying that what Paul meant was he uh, wants them to approve what is excellent for the day of Christ. That's possible. Um, but I think because it comes right after pure and blameless, more likely it, it uh, has to do with those, those words. Be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and then filled with the fruit of righteousness, this kind of confusing phrase. So it just starts with the verb, filled, or being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Yes, please. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, so 
This is the ESV. So the NASV translates that a verb, having been filled, which is a fine translation. Um, it's, uh, I'm not going to get into the technical stuff, but that's definitely a way you can translate it. But so is this. Uh, so, but I, I think the New American Standard probably captures the way that the Greek verb works better. Um, and so, uh, having been filled, it's a, it's a called a perfect verb, which means it's a, an action that's been done in the past and has continuing effects into the future. Uh, and so, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, so then you would need to ask, well, when were you filled with the fruit of righteousness? When is this? Is this talking about at the day of Christ, or is this talking about right now? Um, so we can debate about that. But this is a reason why you may want to read multiple translations, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks uh, as a tool to help you understand the text. But that's one way you can say, okay, if I read multiple translations, I might get a better idea about what the range of meaning could be here. So I said that that went under pure and, and blameless. So I think that filled with the fruit of righteousness has something to do with being pure and blameless. Um, now, you could move it over and say approving, um, it's related to approving what is excellent, that could work too. Um, but this is, remember, this is not an exact science. Here you're just trying to get a feel for how does all this fit together? What kind of questions do I need to ask to determine how I know where something goes and how they're related? Um, this helps you break it down in, in, a, in, a, in a way uh, that maybe you wouldn't be able to if you were just reading it in a big block uh, of text and just seeing thing after thing after thing after thing. It's filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So what is that referring to? I said the, the fruit of righteousness. Um, and then to the glory and praise of God. This is one that Tom and I spent some time talking about. Uh, is... Uh, What's that modifying? Uh, could be everything. That's an option. Could be being filled with the fruit of righteousness, leads to the glory and praise of God. Could be being pure and blameless, leads to the glory and praise of God. Could be approving what is excellent, leads to the glory and praise of God. Could be that your love abounding leads to the glory and praise of God. I think theologically, we would say probably all of those things are correct. All of those things would lead to glory and praise for God. Um, so is that what Paul means here? Does he mean for it to be referencing everything? Well, it's possible. Um, I, keep, I keep throwing Tom's name out there. Don't, don't corner Tom after this. So... What you end up with when you, when you do this is you might understand the, the structure and the flow of the, of the sentence, of the paragraph, the text better, and understand kind of, all right, where are the parts that I need to start asking questions about? That's one of the, the best things that's going to come out of you making observations, doing something like this, is you're going to end up with a lot of questions. That's the point. So don't expect to do this and come up with a lot of answers. And if you're disappointed that you didn't come up with answers, that's okay. You're supposed to come up with questions. That's how, we, that's how we interpret things is when we start asking questions about what we're seeing. 
Correct. I'm saying there is not a infallible, inspired, this is the right answer way to phrase it. I think there are, there are some answers that are probably closer than others, uh, and, and we can start talking through why that is. Uh, but ultimately, there's, there's no right answer that we're going to arrive at. I don't have the answer key. They didn't include that in my seminary training. Um, so, can you have two main phrases? Sure. So, if, um, if you're taking a text and there's, and there's two big ideas, then you would just kind of start over. You'd, you'd move it back to the left all the way over, and so then you'd have two. So, now, I, I would say probably there's not two main phrases in this one. And the reason I would say that is because it's all one sentence and that all of the phrases except the first one start with uh, a, a preposition or it would basically be an incomplete sentence. Now, some translations, because it's a really long sentence, will... Uh, break it down into multiple separate sentences. And so again, this is a place where reading multiple translations will be helpful and using a translation that's, that's essentially literal like the New American Standard Bible or the English Standard Version is helpful because they're going to try to follow the grammar of the original language more closely. And so I, I'm not sure, but I, I would imagine that maybe a Bible like the NIV probably has it broken up into two or three sentences, which is fine. But uh, it may, when you do something like this, it may end up being more confusing. So there's certainly texts where that's, where that's true. Um, yeah. But I think everything kind of fits under this idea. This is all one big prayer that Paul is making. So everything would at least go under, would go under that. But it's, it's possible that there would be more than one uh, main phrase, depending on how big of a selection of text that you had. Any other questions on this? This is just review, but I, I mean, I had asked you to, to at least try and do this for the class, so I didn't want to leave you hanging. I wanted to show you what I did. Everybody's pro? Expert now? Good? All right. Awesome. So... I feel super good about what time it is right now and about how much time we have to, uh, to talk about what we're doing tonight. I'm excited. This, is, this one's fun. I think it's fun. You might not think it's fun. I think it's fun. So if you turn to page uh, 55 in your workbook, We're going to start into lesson four. It's like I mentioned before, um, we're, we're transitioning now in the class from just making observations, which can certainly seem pretty tedious sometimes. Like, really, I have to come up with this many observations. This is ridiculous. Um, that kind of thing. We're going to start taking that raw material and refining it and trying, to, and trying to, to come up with, okay, now that we see 
what's actually there in the text, what it actually says. Now we want to start asking, what does it mean? And the bridge between observation and interpretation are these things we call interpretive questions. So the, the workbook calls this chapter, Query the Text, which means just ask the text questions. Um, oh, I did all this too. This is all in your notes. So, okay. So asking interpretive questions. So remember, we're, uh, the, the workbook's giving us three big principles for interpretation, big guiding ideas uh, that kind of set the boundaries for the way that we interpret the Bible, and then 10 strategies for studying the text that actually how do you sit down and work through a text of Scripture and study it and understand it. So remember we talked about historical interpretation, that the text means what it meant to the original author and the original audience, and so we need to understand the historical context. And then we've talked about three of these uh, strategies, phrasing, uh, which we just did, recording your observations, because as I reminded you last time, the dullest pencil is better than the sharpest mind, and uh, discerning the main point, which is basically just saying, now that I've made observations, do I have, do I have any clue, do I have any guess at what the main point might be, with the understanding that you may change that as you study it. But do you, have, do you have any kind of summary that you might give of, of what the text says? So now we're going to move to asking interpretive questions, taking your observations and just peppering them with questions. This is in the book, uh, Inductive Bible Study, the, the optional reading. The key to more intelligent reading of the Bible is to learn to read the text carefully and to ask the right questions of the text. Interpretive questions primarily function as the bridge between observation and interpretation, so you can see where I, where I stole that from. This step will often coincide both with making observations and with answering interpretive questions uh, with the evidence from the text. Uh, as we do this, we will arrive at the author's intended meaning. So the way that we're learning this is kind of step by step. First you make observations, then you ask interpretive questions. Then you come up with an interpretation. The reality is the more and more that you do this, the more that all of these steps are going to intertwine. Uh, the more that you're going to be, you're not just going to record all of your observations at once and then move wholesale to asking questions. Uh, the more you do it, the more you're going to make an observation and immediately you're going to ask the question. You're probably already doing this. You make an observation you say, well, what does that mean? How does that fit with that? Those are, those are interpretive questions. So, uh, and then as you seek to answer those questions from the text, then you're going to get to the author's meaning, which is kind of the center point of where we're trying to get to as we interpret the Bible. Is what did the author intend this to mean? This step is especially important when we assume we know the meaning of a text. It forces us to ask whether or not we have truly understood the text on its own terms. Inquisitiveness is the antidote to assumption. So if you assume you know what a text means, you're going to be less likely to ask questions of it. You're just going to go on and say, oh, yeah, 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 I know what that means. I heard that before. The question is, did you, either did you hear right or did you really hear it or... Have you studied it properly and come to that understanding and can you argue why or is it just going to be well because that's what so-and-so said? So we're going to talk about a couple texts tonight just as examples uh, 
that I think are often misunderstood by Christians because of the way that they're taught popularly. I think if we, as we look at uh, asking questions about the text and we look at, at the context, uh, we find uh, that maybe we'll come up with a, with a different answer of what, of what some of these things mean. This is from a book uh, called The Knowable Word by Peter Kroll, which is a really great little, little book um, about how to study the Bible. Very much goes by the same kind of process that we're talking about, observation, interpretation. He just goes right to application, but he includes correlation on there, I think under interpretation. So he's really talking about the same thing. Uh, And uh, he talks about asking interpretive questions like this. He says, take your observations and ask lots of questions about them. Tackle those observations from every direction. Be as inquisitive as possible. Get better at asking questions, and you'll get better at interpreting. Your questions should be about your observations of the text. Don't ask every question that comes to mind, and don't feel the need to be clever. Your job is not to innovate, but to uncover. The problem with a lot of people, this is, this is my aside, parentheses, the problem with a lot of, of people, uh, particularly in Uh, secular academic circles where they're studying religion is that their goal ultimately is to get published. And what gets published, at least in the secular world, is stuff that's creative and innovative. We come up with something new. So you'll get books out there like The Secret Message of Jesus. Nobody's seen this for 2,000 years, but I figured it out. Let me just give you a hint that you should probably take that book and burn it. <laughs> Our job is not to be creative with the text. It's to be faithful to the text. The meaning is fixed, and it was handed down to the saints 2,000 years ago when the canon was closed, when the Bible was finished. God sealed up the book and said, this is it. Your job is not to create anything else, your job is to understand what I've said. If your observation was poor, your interpretation won't be any better. That's Kroll again. So, that's one of the reasons why we want to try to make good observations, is because if we make good observations, we'll ask good questions. So, what kind of questions do we ask? of the text. This is on, if you're following along in your notes, it's at the top of page 14. Uh, So we can kind of break it down into four big categories. And they roughly follow kind of the standard journalistic type questions that you maybe learned in your your high school English class, right? Who, what, where, when, why, how. The questions of content, it's like the what question. They're asking about the content of the text. So we'll ask something like, well, what is this? Or who is that? Questions of relationship, so the how questions, questions often address the way a text fits together. It's 
So how does X fit with Y? So you're asking, that's a lot of the, the stuff that we're doing when we're phrasing is we're actually taking a step to ask interpretive questions. Well, how does this fit with that? Right, so we were just doing that. Questions of intention, the why questions, deal with the intentions and the purpose of the author. So why did he say that? And questions of implication, so what? Just thinking to draw out the implications of a passage for correlating the passage with other places in Scripture and applying it to your own life. So why does that matter? So a, uh, or a so what question. So uh, an example for that would be in Philippians 1.6, like we were just talking about. Paul says that he's confident that he, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what? Why is it significant that that's what Paul said? Why is it significant that Paul is confident that God is going to complete his work in the Philippians? Why does, that, why does that matter? What does that teach us about the Christian life? What, if we're Christians, what does that teach us about our life? Right, so, so those are some of the kind of interpretive questions that we would ask with that. So this whole idea of asking interpretive questions and finding the author's meaning by asking interpretive questions is really the heart of Bible study. And so you'll see as we go that we're actually going to spend a lot of time over the next several lessons talking about different tools that will help us answer the questions that we're asking of the text. So we're going to start tonight asking the question, oh, did I? Oh, yeah. Here's something else for you to read. Once you've asked your questions, answer them. There's one critical rule. Answer questions only if they're answered explicitly or implicitly in the text. So we're going to talk about moving from asking the questions to answering the questions and all the tools that you're going to use to, to answer the questions. But this is from Kroll again. Peter Kroll says, only answer them if you can make an argument that the text is giving you an answer to it. Right? Don't chase rabbits through the trails of your mind. Don't use minor details to make the text say what you want it to say. Don't build a theology from one unclear verse. Instead, answer only those questions that are either assumed or addressed in the text. Let the rest go. I don't remember if I've used this example, but I may have, so bear with me if I'm telling you the same story. Uh, in John chapter 8, there's a, an account of Jesus um, and, uh, and there's a woman who's been caught in adultery, and she's going to be stoned. And Jesus shows up and says that he stooped down, and he was writing uh, in, in the dirt on the ground. And then they're, you know, they're, he tells them, well, if you, if you were without sin, you cast the first stone. And then he stooped down, and he wrote on the dirt again. And then they all went away and and uh, nobody stoned her, and so you can read the story, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, so what was Jesus writing in the dirt? <laughs> right, so this is, when you're reading the text, you might have that question. It says he stooped down and wrote in the dirt. What was he writing in the dirt? Okay, we can't answer it. Why? I mean, we're not looking at the text, but do you know why? It doesn't say what he's writing, right? right? The, the text doesn't say. So we can ask the question, 
But once we realize the text doesn't actually answer our question, we need to let it go. We need to say, if the text is not answering this question, then it's probably not something that's super important to interpreting the text, and I don't need to know. So, but you'll hear it, because this preaches well. People will be like, they were writing her sins in the, in, in, in the dirt, and then he was wiping them away, or he was writing their sins in the dirt, and then he was wiping them away, or he was writing their names, or stuff like that. And it's like, well, that's all very creative, but the Bible doesn't actually say that, so you shouldn't teach it. Um, so, but that's a place where maybe you're asking a question and then you're realizing, oh, but you know what? It doesn't actually answer that, so I need to be okay with the fact that we don't know why. And actually, perhaps one of the reasons why it's included is because the person who wrote it was there and was saying, oh, and by the way, when, when after Jesus did that, he just got down and he started drawing in the dirt. It's just a historical observation that actually might be evidence that there was an eyewitness there. Because that kind of stuff that doesn't have particular significance to the story isn't usually included in something that's made up. At least it wasn't back then. When they wrote fiction, back in, in uh, the ancient Greek world, they didn't include lots of realistic details like the kind of fiction that we have today does. So, so how do we answer interpretive questions? So this is the, the, the first thing that we're going to talk about, and this is really what we're going to spend the rest of our time on tonight, is we answer interpretive questions from the context of the passage. All right, so we're talking about contextual interpretation. So we ask good interpretive questions. We'll seek to answer those questions from the context of the passage. So words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs have the potential to have multiple meanings. The author's intended meaning is almost always determined by what precedes it or follows it. Right, so uh, somebody came up to me and, and was asking me earlier about um, a, a question about what something meant in uh, one of the books and said, well, I, I can make a guess, but I'd really need to read exactly where it is to remember what they're trying to say. I mean, I could, I could make a guess, but it might not be a very accurate guess. So the meaning is determined by the context, the words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs that are around uh, what you're asking a question about. Your workbook says this on page 56. If we don't practice contextual interpretation, that is, if we don't interpret the Bible by asking what it means in relationship to all the words that are around it, then we show our lack of love and concern for the author of the Bible, God himself. So, you'll, you'll probably hear this a lot. You know, people will talk about reading the Bible in context or taking things out of context. The example that they use in their workbook is pretend you were interviewed for something and uh, somebody took a little snippet of what you said, and that's what they put, that's what they printed, and it was something that you didn't, you didn't mean, or at least it sounds really bad, and the only, the only way that people would understand what you meant is if they heard the whole interview, you'd probably be kind of upset. 
Right? Like, that's not what I said. Or you got to understand, like, um, you've heard this before, I'm, I'm sure that there's a, a place in the Bible that says there is no God. Right? Actually, it's twice in the Psalms. The Psalms say there is no God. But, but if you actually read it in the context, it's immediately preceded by the phrase, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so the context around that phrase determines what it means. And so if we want to interpret the Bible well, and, we want, and if we believe that God speaks through his word, that this is authoritative, that it doesn't make mistakes, then we should always be seeking to find out what does it mean? What did God intend it to mean? What did the authors intend it to mean? Because that's the meaning that God has endowed into the text. Rather than asking the question, what does it mean to me, which is often the question that's asked when you pull something out of context. And this is what happens when uh, you have a, um, this is very popular for um, some types of devotionals, where you open it up and every day there's one verse, and then there's a little First of all, there's, there's one verse that's about two lines long, and there's about 50 lines of, of stuff that's not inspired by God. Riffing on what they think those two lines of what was inspired by God means, but there's no context to it. It's just, oh, the, the word money is here, so we're going to talk about, you know, all this, this stuff. It's like, well, that might not be actually the, the point of the text. I'm going to stop there because I'll go on a rant about those kind of devotionals. <laughs> you can talk to me about that afterwards. I'd be happy to rant for you. It's one of my good ones, too. So we want to read the Bible in context. We want to, we want to try to determine the meaning of a text based on what's around it. So we're going to, we're going to, to do a little exercise right here. All right, I'm going to give you a, uh, a phrase from a book, it's not the Bible, a phrase from a book, and I want you to tell me what it means. Time bombs can be diffused. What's it mean? Okay, you can, you can diffuse time bombs. Pretty, pretty good guess. Yeah, Joanne. Okay, you can prevent time bombs from exploding by diffusing them. Yes, Steve. You can reconcile arguments, okay. Now, so we have two very different kind of ideas. One is taking it very literally. We're actually talking about a, an explosive device with a countdown, like in 24. It's going to explode, and Jack Bauer needs to diffuse it. Or we're using it uh, figuratively to talk about something different. How would you know which one's right? So it's just whatever you want it to mean, whatever, whatever fits your particular situation? It's the context. You guys are paying attention. Uh, this is a book called Going the Distance that I'm reading. It's about um, pastoral ministry. Unresolved anger is like a time bomb. 
If healthy patterns and strategies for handling anger constructively are not in place, then pastors can either turn the anger inwards or express it erratically and hurtfully about others. I may have copied this wrong. Don't pay attention to that. However, time bombs can be diffused. Pastors who want to continue in faithful ministry need to become skilled bomb disposal experts. So, uh, what does it mean that time bombs can be diffused? You won't hear my rant, yeah. Unresolved anger is like a time bomb. So what's the time bomb? Well, it's not an actual explosive. It's unresolved anger. So he's using it figuratively. Had you read this book, Steve? Well, I was hoping maybe I'd read that. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that, un, that uh, unresolved anger is a time bomb, but, but if it can be... Uh, hand, if, uh, if you can have healthy patterns and strategies for handling anger, that will diffuse the time bomb of anger, right? But the only way that you're going to know that is if you pay attention to everything that's around it. If I had just flipped open this book with no attention to what was on the cover, what was on the back cover telling me what the book was about, looking at the table of contents, seeing where, you know, what the flow of the book was, and then actually reading the book and understanding what the author was saying, I could open the book, say, time bombs can be diffused, and be like, this is great. I'm going to give this to all my friends in law enforcement. Right? Yeah. So context matters. It matters. It determines the meaning. All right, now we're going to have fun because we're going to do it with the Bible. Again, remember that part of asking interpretive questions is being willing to challenge the assumptions that you have about particular passages of Scripture. We need, and I think we talked about this in an earlier class, we need to have the humility to know that we don't get it right 100% of the time. And so that our understanding of a text always is subject to what the text actually says and what it means. And so just because we heard it meant something or we've always thought it meant something doesn't necessarily mean it means that. And if you really claim to value the authority and the inspiration and the inerrancy of God's Word, then we need to submit ourselves to what the Bible teaches, not what we assume it teaches. Understand? All right. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many of you have seen this on a t-shirt uh, for a baseball team or a weightlifter or a Tim Tebow with it on the eye black? Getting ready to go out and, and win a football game in Florida. All right. So we, we take this verse, and this is, this is the one that you, that you cross-stitch and you put on your wall. Uh, and, and do all that kind of thing. You go to a Christian bookstore, which I never recommend, and you, uh, you see this plastered everywhere on all sorts of kitschy things. That's another rant I have. We can do that one later too. <laughs> I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the question that I have, the, the interpretive question that I have that then I want to answer from the context is, what are all things? 
What are all things? Are you allowed to look? Well, <laughs> that would be the right answer is rather than, so this is, I'm going to give you guys another hint. When we're studying the Bible and when the person teaching or leading asks a question about what something means, the best thing that you can do is put your nose in the book and start reading, reading around it, trying to figure it out. The worst thing that you could do is go like this. Because then you're thinking about what you think it means, not what the Bible says it means. So you always want to be looking in the context. Right? So a lot of people will read this, and based on the way that it's taught or the way that they, that they see it presented, like what well, means everything. I can do anything I want through him who strengthens me. There's nothing I can't do. So we are superheroes for Jesus. We can do whatever we want. I read an example this week, or it was a couple weeks ago, because I've, I've had this ready. This has been pent up in me for the last three weeks. Um, yeah, Don. Yeah, you're cheating. You're going ahead. Stop cheating. Yeah. No, Don's right. Don said, aren't we supposed to correlate it with other things as well? Aren't we supposed to ask, well, what does the rest of Scripture say about this? Because we can't take it out of context, because then you'll you'll read something like in James chapter 2 where it says, you don't think faith alone saves you, does it? And they were like, well, see, the Bible teaches that it's, it's faith plus works. Like, well, wait a minute, but how does that fit with the rest of stuff? So that's a more complex one. We're not going to talk about that tonight, but we do need, we need to ask that question, but that's next week. So stop going ahead. Um, but, that, but that's a good observation. We need to ask what the rest of the Bible says. But first I want to ask, what is, what is the rest of this immediate context say it is? And I was as I was saying, I was reading in a book where a guy was talking about this example in particular and reading in context. He says, some people, it's like, it's all things without exception. Well, does that include sin? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can sin through Christ who strengthens me. You think that's what it means? Yeah, that would, be, that would be a contradiction. That would be a theological contradiction. And that, that's a place where Don's advice of going to other Scripture and looking, that would be really helpful. Say, well, I'm uh, pretty sure the rest of the Bible would say that's false. So if we believe that the Bible is one book with one divine author that doesn't contradict itself, then probably doesn't mean that. So, okay, well, what about if it's not sin? Um, I can do... Uh, anything I want that's not sin through him who strengthens me. So uh, I'm going to take this verse, I'm going to claim it for my life, and I am going to play in the NBA next year. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And how dare you tell me that I'm wrong? Do you think that's what Paul meant? Probably not. There's many reasons why I will not be playing in the NBA next year. Not the least because my vertical jump is about six inches. And that's generous, yeah. So, again, we can't read the Bible by just breaking it apart into little pieces and taking them one by one and interpreting them apart from one another. We have to say, what was Paul talking about here? 
Yeah, so... Yeah. So, so are there times where you're not going to be able to understand something unless you understand the original Hebrew or Greek uh, language and the nuances there and stuff like that? So I've heard it explained this way before. Being able to read Hebrew and Greek is like watching TV in high def instead of standard def. They used to say black and white in color, but nobody watches black and white TV anymore, so that's not a good example. So you're going to see the exact same thing, but what you see might be sharper. Okay? So I think in general, you're never going to not be able to come to the meaning of a text because you don't know Hebrew or Greek. And in fact, a lot of the times when we want to say, uh, well, we have to look in the, in the Greek or the, or the Hebrew for that, I think there's a lot of times when we do that because we don't like what we think it means. So, in the example that you use, Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother and even your own life, you're not worthy to be my disciple. That that's exactly what the Greek says. Well, how do you know? How do you know it's not what it means? Okay. Sure. So, yeah. So, uh, simply reading it in Hebrew or Greek wouldn't necessarily give you the right answer. You're still going to need to look at other parts of Scripture. You're going to need to understand is Jesus using hyperbole here, which is just, is he exaggerating to make a point, which is something, it's a rhetorical device that everybody, everybody uses, right? When you go home for dinner, you say you're starving. You are not starving, right? You're not being literal. You're using hyperbole to describe the fact that you are very hungry. Are you lying when you say that? Well, no, because you're not intending to actually communicate that you're starving. You're just using a figure of speech to say, I'm really hungry, right? So you have to think, okay, is it okay for Jesus to have used figures of speech like that? Th- things like that. So that's, that's the kind of stuff that, that you'll need to continue to ask uh, as you come to texts like that. So, so I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, let's look at the context. And you can go to, there's more context that we could go to. I didn't want to put too much on the screen for you. Paul says, not that I speak from want. This is the end of his letter. He's starting to wind things down. Maybe I'll read the the verse right before it. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So we'd have to ask questions about what exactly is he talking about there. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled, going hungry 
both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How does that change what we might think that verse means? Here, I'm going to, Steve. All doesn't really mean all. So there's, there's a limitation to what all means. Right? We already kind of saw that when we said it doesn't mean sin. Right? So all doesn't mean all, everything without exception. So there's, there's some kind of limitation to it. This focuses it more. Yeah. Mike, what were you going to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, yeah, John. Sure. But, yeah, and, and so it, the question would be is that, is that what he means by when he says, I can do all things? Yeah, yeah. So, um, specifically, if you keep reading, you find out that what Paul's talking about is that the Philippians have sent him a gift, a monetary gift that they took a collection for him and Epaphroditus brought it. Um, see that in verse 18. But I've received everything in full and have abundance and am amply surprised, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. So, Paul's saying, I, thank you for sending this wonderful gift. Really appreciate that. That helps. Um, but just, just so you know, you know, even though I, I lacked this before, God's taught me what it means to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. How can I be content in whatever circumstance I'm in? I can do it through Christ who gives me strength. Gives me strength despite the fact that I'm hungry or poor or sick. Yeah, it's been mistaught. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, do the people who are doing this mean to, to do something bad by it? No, of course not. They mean to encourage Christians. And I think this verse is very encouraging to Christians. I just think it's encouraging in a different way. I think when you actually do the work to understand what the verse means, it's actually much more powerfully encouraging because it takes seriously the fact that life is hard and following Jesus is hard and there's going to be times when things don't work out the way you want them to. Paul is an example for us, and he's writing this, and he's sitting, you know, he's under house arrest, uh, and he's saying, like, yeah, I, I mean, I know. If you, you read other places in, in Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians, uh, the end of 2 Corinthians, he talks a lot about this, about all the stuff he's been through. 
He's like, I've been beaten a bunch of times. I was shipwrecked. I was adrift at sea, all this stuff. And Paul's saying, I can, I can do it all. Why? Because I have Jesus. And you tell me that's not a better, better news than just I can do whatever I want through him. Brett. Yeah, as Brett says, the, the main way that, we, that, uh, the, the, that some people will teach this and will say, um, well, you can do, uh, but when it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, it means uh, I can do everything that I want through him who strengthens me. Rather than saying, I can do, I can do or I can endure everything that comes my way because I have Christ. So, in the, f- the first version, Christ becomes like a genie that, that grants you the ability to do whatever you want. In the second version, Christ becomes a treasure that is everything you need. So, basically, using your example, then, you can be a man-eater <laughs> Yes. So, no matter, no matter whether or not I end up in the NBA next year, I can be content because I have Jesus. Don't worry, I wasn't thinking of trying out. Smart, smart move, yeah. Yeah, Joanne. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, if we interpret it the way that uh, a lot of people interpret it, Joanne, saying it puts the emphasis on what I can do. Look at me. Uh, I can do this. Oh, yeah, 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 I do it through, I do it through Christ, but it's what I can do rather than what on, uh, he, he enables me or he does in me and the satisfaction that he creates in me. Yeah, Sherry. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 Sherry says it, that psychologically it can, it can be damaging the way that it's taught. Um, the example she uses, oh, I can be president of the United States through Christ who strengthens me. Well, can tell you, if you weren't born in the United States, you can't be president of the United States through Christ who strengthens you. That's not going to happen. Um, so if you're under 35, you're not going to be president of the United States. It doesn't matter. So, but we've, we've been taught that, that yeah, yeah, we can do whatever, whatever we want, and that's misleading, and it can be psychologically damaging and spiritually damaging because if you go around telling people that, you can do whatever you want through Jesus. All you got to do is claim this promise or, or whatever. I have another rant about claiming promises. You guys start listing these. Um, then when it, when it doesn't happen, how do you respond? Like, well, God's word must not be true or God didn't come through for me. Yeah, you didn't have enough faith. My goodness, what blasphemy. Like, this can really damage people and cause people to walk away from the faith because they're, 
They're being told that God has promised them things that they've, that the Bible doesn't say He's promised them. I mean, this is the whole problem with the with the prosperity gospel is they're taking these verses and they say, look, if you just do this, God's going to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. I'm telling you, that's not what the Bible says. But people eat it up because that's what, that's what they want. And so it is, it is damaging. And, and I think for, for a lot of people who do this, they do it very innocently. They don't mean for it to be spiritually damaging. I think there are people who do do it, and they're false teachers and heretics, and they're under the curse of God for doing it. But I think there are a lot of people who do it, and they just don't, they just don't know better. And they don't realize that the teaching can have that effect on people. So it's really important for us to interpret the Bible in context. We're going to do a, another example, I think, um, in, the, in the time that we have uh, remaining. But uh, one thing to, to think about, we just used, so we, used, so we have one sentence, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I basically just read a couple verses before and then a couple verses that come later in the chapter uh, to kind of help us get an idea of, of what was going on. Okay? So, but there are a bunch of levels of context that, that you can look at. So we start with the smallest one, right? What, is the, what does the sentence say? And then you move out from there like concentric circles or concentric boxes in this illustration. And you look at what the, what the paragraph around it says and then the chapter or the kind of the big section of the book that you're in, what is that talking about? And then the book of the Bible, what is the whole book say about that? Is there anywhere else in the book that talks about that? And then the whole Bible, and there's probably other kind of levels of context in between those that you could, that you could look at, on, you know, within uh, after Bible book, particularly with something like Philippians, we could say, well, does Paul talk about this somewhere else in his letters? And then we'd move out to, what does the rest of the New Testament say? And then what does the rest of the whole Bible say? So, yeah, Brett. No, these are not levels of importance. That's a good observation. Um, you start with the smallest and, and then move out, but, and that's generally how I, would, how I would do it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, one is more important than another. I think a lot of times you'll find that the closer in to the context, uh, the more helpful it's going to be, because uh, sometimes what you'll end up doing if you start with the whole Bible and you'll just say, uh, like we'll use the example of the fruit of righteousness that's in that little packet I gave you. If I started by saying, let me just find everywhere else in the whole Bible that talks about righteousness, and then I, and I determined what righteousness, righteousness meant from that, I probably would end up with maybe a different interpretation because righteousness can mean a couple different things. Right? And so then I need to ask, well, how does Paul use it? How does Paul use it in the book of Philippians? How does Paul use it in, is there anywhere else right around there where he talks about it? Things like that. So you want to start with what does this section and chapter and book say about it and then move outward. And that's, we talk about cross-referencing and what does the rest of the Bible say and we're going to talk about that next week. But uh, what I want to do is I want to give an example of, of a, a text, another text that's very commonly misunderstood and um, by looking at 
both the, the immediate context right around it and then the larger context, particularly the kind of the two chapters that this verse is situated in, uh, we'll get a better idea of what the verse means. And again, I think, I think ultimately it's better news uh, when we interpret it correctly than it is when we just pull it out of context. So, the verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And I, I think I forgot to change. This is the NASB. The, the ESV says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil uh, to give you a future and a hope. Um, and so, start thinking about interpretive questions that we can ask. What's the context of the verse? That's the main thing I want you guys to be concerned with. What's the context of this verse? What can we learn about the verse from the context, from the immediate context, and from then these two chapters, Jeremiah 28 and Jeremiah 29? And then start asking some other interpretive questions that, um, that we, can, we can talk through, and I'm going I'm to run through those, a couple of those things at the end. But uh, who does uh, the word you refer to? Is it just anyone in general? Or is it a particular person or group of people? What's the word evil mean? Does Jeremiah use that word anywhere else? What does it mean when he uses it? Does Jeremiah use the word future and hope together anywhere else? He says, I'm going to give you a hope and a future. So what does that mean? What do each of those words mean? And then is there anywhere else that he uses them, uses them together? That might give us an indication of Maybe what he means by that. So, but for, for the time being, what I want you to do is I want you to take a few minutes and uh, maybe, maybe just read Jeremiah 29. Just Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, I'm not going to make you go back to Jeremiah 28 and take you a little bit longer, um, but we'll, uh, we'll kind of paint the picture then uh, in, a, in a few minutes about what's the the context of this verse, how might, how might that help us understand? So read Jeremiah 29 and uh, take about 10 minutes or so and then we'll, we'll come back together. Okay, hopefully I've had a chance to read through the chapter and think about it a little bit. So First, congratulations again, Tom. It's on. First, just, just kind of in general, what, what's a way that you have heard this verse interpreted or taught before? If you've, if you've heard it interpreted or taught. Okay, so for a lot of people, it's, it's their, their life verse. Um, I, think that's, I think that's true. I think I've heard the same thing. Um, why, why would somebody make it their life verse? Yeah, there's, there's hope. I mean, it sounds pretty good, right? My plans for you are, are for your welfare. They're not for evil or calamity. It's going to give you a future and a hope. That sounds pretty great. Sounds like a promise from the Lord. 
which in the context it is. The question is, who's the promise giving to and what it's talking about? So, I think what a lot of people mean when they quote this verse and use this verse is, God has a plan for my life. A plan is, is not ultimately to do harm to me. It's for my, it's for my welfare and my, my well-being and ultimately my salvation and to give me a future and a hope. He's not destining me for wrath but for salvation. And the way that people use it, I'd say generally speaking, theologically they're correct. God has a plan for your life. If you're a Christian, it's not ultimately for evil or destruction. It's for salvation and to conform you to the image of Christ, and you do have a future and a hope. But the, uh, the English Anglican pastor, J.C. Ryle, uh, in a lot of his uh, commentaries on books, would say, well, that interpretation makes for good doctrine. It's not just the doctrine of the text, right? It's like, well, that's true. That's just not what this text says. So I think there's other places that you could go to and find all of those things to be true for Christians. I think when we use this text that way, we're actually robbing it of its meaning. So again, a lot of people use this text. That's the way they interpret it. They don't mean anything bad or, or, or harmful by it. But Again, it could potentially be damaging because if something bad happens in your life and this is the thing that you're trusting, your particular interpretation of this verse, then you're going to be like, um, how come this bad thing happened to me? That's not what you promised me. You promised me welfare, not evil. What's this about? And you'll be angry at God and Maybe some people walk away from the faith because they don't think the Word of God can be trusted. So, how does the context of this verse help us understand what it means? Well, you only read chapter 29. What, what is chapter 29 about? Okay, the exiles in Babylon. So, First thing, we have to go back to like week two, I think, which is like seven weeks ago, or whatever, and we have to think, all right, first of all, it says it's to the exiles in Babylon. We got to ask ourselves, well, what's that about? And so this is where historical interpretation and understanding the historical context is important. Otherwise, we might just think it's anybody who's exiled anywhere. So, um, kind of the, if you understand the whole flow of the book of Jeremiah, what the book of Jeremiah is about, when it was written, and all of that kind of stuff, you know that it's written right at the end of the kingdom of Judah, right? So, uh, Israel has been in decline, uh, and as punishment for their idolatry and their wickedness and their abandonment of the worship of God, God's like, I'm taking the land away from you. And he, he told them he would do that back in Deuteronomy. He said, if you do this, I'm taking the land away. And so this is just him 
pronouncing judgment on his people. And so the Babylonians come, and they start by taking uh, just a little group away. Not, not everybody. They leave some people there. They take some, they take some people into exile in Babylon. Now, <clears throat> later, they come back, and they destroy Jerusalem, and they take everybody. Right. Uh, so, but this is, while there's still some people in Judah, there's a, a puppet king in Judah named Zedekiah, who's a, a real winner. Um, and, uh, and what you have, and, and I'm, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some of the, uh, the context, which you have starting in Jeremiah 28, you have the Babylonians, they, they've come, they've taken the exiles away and, and taken them to Babylon and uh, then there's this guy named Hananiah. He's a false prophet. You learn that if you read chapter 28. And he's coming to everybody, and he's saying, don't worry. It's only going to be two years. Within two years, they're all coming back. We're good. Jeremiah says, well, I, I, uh, I hope you're right, but I know you're wrong. And then kind of the next big section in chapter 28, God tells Jeremiah, you need to go and refute this false prophecy and say, Hananiah, because you've prophesied falsely in my name, you're under my judgment. So he tells him that and uh, says, Hananiah, you're going to die. And then Hananiah dies, which confirms that Hananiah was a false prophet and Jeremiah is a true prophet. So, but this, this lie has been then circulating among the people of Israel that, oh, the Lord says it's only going to be two years. We're great. We just need to kick back and relax in Babylon. We're coming back soon. It's a short sentence. And so the beginning says that Jeremiah writes this letter. So Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem, and he writes this letter to the people in Babylon. And what does he say to the people in the, to the Jews in Babylon? Yeah. He says, get comfortable. Marry, build houses, have children, uh, make sure your children get married, uh, settle in, seek the welfare of the city. Don't just, you're not a tourist, you're living there now. It doesn't sound like two years. How long does he say it's going to be? He says 70 years. He says, you're going to be there for 70 years. Settle in for life in Babylon. And he says, don't trust in the message of these false prophets, right, in verses 8 and 9. Don't let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely in my name, and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So just in case they were worried, Jeremiah is saying, that guy that said it was only going to be two years, don't listen to him. He's lying, and now he's dead, which proves that he was lying. But don't listen to them. They're telling you lies. I haven't sent them. And then he says, verse 10, when 70 years have been completed, then I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. You, who's he talking to? Who's you? The exiles in Babylon. I know the plan I have for, for you. The plan is you're going to be in exile for 70 years. And then I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. I'm going to bring you back. 
And you go back, this is, this is what God promised in Deuteronomy. He said, if you, if you do all this stuff, I'm going to take the land away from you, but then I'll bring you back. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Uh, hmm? At this time, I know no clue. But I think I know where you're going with this. Right? And this, this is actually a good observation if we're on the same wavelength. So, and then the rest of the chapter, he says, just, just to kind of back up what he's already said, he said, there's more judgment coming on Jerusalem. Don't think you're going back in two years. It's actually going to get worse there before it gets better. Now, a lot of times we want to read this verse in isolation and say, wow, what a great promise. God's got only good things planned for me. Nothing is going to go bad. No calamity, no disaster, nothing. Everything's going to be great. It's going to, he's going to give me a future and a hope. It's awesome. The problem is when we read the verse in the context, it's not at all what Jeremiah has said, is it? He said, it's going to be 70 years that you're going to live in exile away from the only home that you've ever known because you're under my judgment, because you abandoned me. And this is, you read through the whole book of Jeremiah, go to Jeremiah 2, and God says, it's so painful. He says, what fault did your fathers find in me that they turned away from me? The people have abandoned God. And so he's like, you're there, you're under my judgment. I'm going to bring you back because I'm faithful to my word. Not because you deserve it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, now this, this is a place where maybe I have to backtrack on my words from before. The, the Hebrew word you is plural. So he's not talking to an individual. So I stand corrected. But there are ways that you can, that you can learn that. And some translations will even uh, put a footnote at the bottom that says the, the Hebrew or the Greek is plural. So, yeah, sure. Do we have trouble with that as Americans because we're just very individualistic? So it's like, well, this is, uh, this is a promise to me right now. Well, yeah, you should, sure, and it should be. So, so yes, it's, it's the nation collectively. I have, I have plans for you, my people. To prosper you, not to, not to harm you. But, exiles is plural. That's correct. You don't need to know Hebrew to know that. So, but what you're saying is, what's the lifespan? Because here's the reality. They're going to be there for 70 years. A lot of these people are adults, right? They have children. He's telling them, have children, get married, marry your children. So, some of them have children. Um, but a lot of them are adults. So, what's going to happen 70 years from now? <laughs> A lot of the people that are reading this letter or hearing this being told to them, saying God has, God has a plan for you. Part of God's plan for you is that you're going to die in Babylon. And your kids are going to go back, but you're not. Right? It's probably not quite the same kind of encouragement people want when they, when they stamp that on a, on a note card and, and hang it somewhere, Right? I have plans to prosper you. You're going to die in Babylon. Right. 
So, it's a promise that God is going to be faithful to his word, that he's going to fulfill the word that he promised. He's going to bring the exiles back. But it's, the, it's not necessarily every single individual who went away. It's the people as a whole. So whoever's you know, living there at the time. Um, <laughs> am I sure that he's not giving them a promise that they're going to live a long time? I suppose I can't say I'm 100% sure, but I think that's really unlikely. So, um, real quick, I'm going to skip this. Other places where Jeremiah uses the word evil, what does, it mean by, what does he mean by evil? I have plans for you for welfare, not for evil. Um, you know, we read that and say nothing bad is ever going to happen, but when Jeremiah uses the word evil, particularly in this context, there's a couple places. You go to Jeremiah 26, and the word evil is the same word as disaster, And he uses this word to talk about the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. This is God talking to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, Mend your ways and your deeds. Obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent from the disaster that he has pronounced against you. And so, ultimately, and there's another one in verse 19, same deal. Jeremiah 29, 11, God's saying, I have plans for you. It's for your welfare. It's for your peace. It's not ultimately to bring disaster upon you as, as a people, though that's what's happening right now. My long-term plans are not that for you. So, and then this is particularly instructive, I think. Are there places where hope and future occur together? This is stuff that I wouldn't necessarily have expected you to, to be able to find just from reading the context. This is all bonus stuff that hopefully by the end of the class you'll be able to, to kind of understand. Where do I go to, to, to find this stuff? Um, We're going to talk about that with using a concordance and doing word studies and stuff like that as well. But Jeremiah 31, 17, where God is is saying, Jeremiah, tell the people, give them this message of hope now. He says, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. There's hope for your future. It's your children going back, not you. But it proves that God is faithful to his word. So this is how I paraphrased it, sort of. God has a plan for the welfare of the people of Israel who are in exile in Babylon. But it's not the plan that the false prophets are telling them about. For they're saying that the exile will be very brief, two years tops. God's plan is a plan that will not come to fruition for 70 years. Years, So the exiles need to settle into their life in Babylon. But after the 70 years is complete, God promises to bring the children of these exiles back to the land. For there is hope for their future. And for the future of the people of Israel, ultimately, through whom come the Messiah who is born in the land to which they've returned. I think you can learn things about the character of God, about his faithfulness, about how seriously he takes sin. But to to pull it and say, this verse is about me and my life right now, that's not what it's saying. But I can tell you that the God who loves you because you're in Christ, it's the same God who's faithful to his word and to his people and always will be. Isn't that a better word?
And then it help you actually more seriously deal with the bad stuff that happens in your life rather than painting over it saying, nope, it's not bad because God said no, no calamity, only welfare. I think that's better news because it actually meets me in my suffering rather than pretending like it doesn't exist. Well, that was fun. I wish we could do more. Uh, but we're, we're already uh, over time. So um, real quick, this is just bonus kind of as we answer interpretive questions, um, you might also need to use some other tools like I mentioned before. So the next several lessons, we're going to be talking about other ways that we can uh, use um, the context and then some other tools to, uh, to understand the meaning of a text. So next week, we're going to talk about cross-referencing, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, um, uh, which Don was jumping ahead to before. Uh, So come back next week. That really is next week, not just the next time. Next week, the 10th, uh, and we're going to do that for next week. um, Look at your workbook, pages 61 to 64. They want you to come up with a bunch of interpretive questions. I don't care about the number. I just want you to try to do it. So just try to come up with as many interpretive questions as you can. Just ask questions of the text. It's um, Philippians 1, 12 to 26. Just Ask questions. What does this mean? How does this fit with this? Things, things like that. And uh, if, you get a, if you get a chance, try to, try to do some preliminary answers. Try to think through, well, how might I be able to answer this from the immediate context or from the rest of the book of Philippians? And this is where, having read through the book of Philippians several times, you might be like, oh, he talks about this somewhere else. I, I should probably go there. Or I remember when I outlined the book, this was the main kind of big idea of this paragraph. So maybe this is what he's talking about. So you, you can start to see that what we've actually been, been doing is going to help you interpret the book as you, uh, as you go. Uh, there's one chapter in Dig Deeper that's about context. So read that. The handout that I gave you, never read a Bible verse. It's under required. You don't have to read it, but I gave it to you. So read it whenever you want. Um, it's, uh, it's really about context and it goes through a bunch of different examples of thing, places where Things are taken out of context. Tomorrow when I post the audio, with the audio, I'm going to post some book recommendations that talk about reading in context and taking verses out of context that might be helpful. Uh, and then, again, for uh, the super bonus lightning round, if you want to read uh, the thing I put together on what is the fruit of righteousness and tell me why you agree or disagree with my conclusion, uh, you are more than welcome to do that. But that's just uh, an example that I've given you of how to wrestle with I have this question about what does this thing mean? So what are the questions that I'm asking? How am I using the context to answer it? Uh, And so forth. Also, in the little footnotes at the bottom, I've tried to highlight where I'm also using different skills that we've already uh, learned already or that we'll be learning in the coming weeks um, to to aid my study so you can kind of see how things start to fit together. So, good? All right, thank you. See you next week, the 10th, same time, same place.